This audio fiction is recorded for an adult audience. It may contain scenes of explicit sex, violence and disturbing supernatural entities. Listener discretion is recommended. speak to you of the macabre, the cursed, the maligned, the malignant, the possessed, and the downright demonic. Bolt all doors, lock all windows. Are you alone? Are you sure? I suggest you check under the bed, carefully, twice, Did you check deep in the wardrobe, behind the clothes? Are you in bed yet? Did you turn off the lights? They will come soon. They will follow my voice. But it will also keep them at bay. Most of them. For some of you, there is no hope. You know who you are. Prepare to be whisked away to lands ancient and modern, familiar and far away. Prepare to question where fiction ends and fact begins. My name is DJ Swales. This is my horror and gothic horror audio fiction podcast. I'm the author of Baratanak, book one in my Fitzmarbury Witches series. The entire novel series came to me in a dream, waking me at 3am in a small bare writing room I'd rented in Bloomsbury, next door to Bob Marley's old apartment. In 2012, I gave up my London job, home, and mothballed all my worldly belongings to embark on eight nomadic years of travel, risking everything to chase my dream of becoming a writer. But my dream became an obsession. I wrote five million words of prose and hundreds of spontaneous poems in decaying cafes, dusty bookshops, and decrepit hotels. During these eight years, I journeyed from Istanbul to India, from Beverly Hills to Borneo, from St. Petersburg to Peru, but I published nothing until now. My only constant companion on my exhaustive travels in countless airports, bus terminals and railway stations was a large body-sized suitcase called Letitia. 
perhaps it was due to the circumstances of my birth in the midst of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland and my own family's trauma that during my years of transience I was inexplicably drawn to places with dark histories. Could it be because I have called so many brutally scarred locations home? Like Berlin, Singapore, Nicosia, Manila, Seoul, where my home and art studio burned to the ground, and the high plains of West Texas where I was left for dead, that I can somehow taste the residual, lingering misery of war, turmoil and grief. On this dark, blood-sodden earth, I have stood endlessly on the same soil, sand and stone where many people were extinguished before their time, often in the most grotesque of circumstances, suffering such injustices that their spirits cannot move on. <coughs> on the wind I heard the moans of trapped souls seeking lost loves. In countless holy places, the prayers of the forgotten faithful still soak every surface and flutter from the walls like the wings of ten thousand moths. My skin prickled as the spirits of the damned crowded closely around me. In my obsessive travels, I ran my hands over the ancient ruins of Baalbek. I stood in the halls of abandoned Armenian monasteries and churches in the shadow of Mount Ararat. I sought out the greatest of the trees, witnesses to all of man's crimes, placing my hands and ears to their gnarled trunks and gathering their leaves and fallen bark. I followed ghostly footprints in the snow that swirled beneath the cedars of Basho's beloved Koyasan. On the high road to Taos, I heard the ghosts of crying coyotes in an enchanted land once ruled by jaguars. In Goa, stained by the misery of the Inquisition, I dreamt of Nalanda. In Egypt, for so long my second home, I listened to midnight's moonlit silence in the Mamluk mosques of Cairo. I trailed my hands in the waters of the Mother Nile. I watched dust devils dance in the funerary desert temples of dead queens and pharaohs in Thebes. And I descended into the heart of great pyramids, and in tomb robber tunnels I was surrounded by the bones of noble corpses. I do not doubt that the magic, curses and broken dreams in each place left an indelible mark on my mind and soul. They have accumulated inside me. Did they infect me or empower me in their yearning to speak of their stories through the dust I inhaled and that still clings to me? But beware, concealed among the dead are other entities. They masquerade as ghosts or lonely spirits, emerging from cracks, crevices and unholy ruptures. In assorted disguises, they are not as they appear. Pray to your God that they will never reveal their true forms to you. In my journeys, I saw and was seen by many such creatures. They scented the paths I had travelled. I protected myself as best I could with talismans and prayers, I feel some of these spectres pursue me to this day, approaching me in nightmares and oblique shadows. It was only a matter of time before they began to influence my writing.
Episode 15 of Baratanak An Ornamental Egyptian Box Seated at the scuffed three-legged sycamore wood table, the priestess of Baal stretched out her arms and gripped a large terracotta bowl, gathering it against her bosom. In the dim light of the cabin, what had once been treasured in the royal households of Cushite pharaohs merely appeared like old clay. In fact, it was a cherished object handed down a line of noble sorcerers for generations. Studying the contents of the bowl, the priestess had to clutch it tightly as a rogue wave shook the vessel. She braced for one that might follow. The white poultice within the bowl before her was too precious to spill and would soon be put to use. In spite of nature's efforts, the thickly hewn ceramic remained as upright as the day it was thrown between the soft thighs of a famed Cushite potter from a cast of such artisans deep in the reaches of the upper Nile. There in that past age, while the red clay was still wet, Egyptian hieroglyphs had been carved into the bowl with a magical binding. Immediately afterwards, an imported rare white clay from the magical mineral pools of Sect Am had been pasted into those furrows and then sanded, so that they would read clearly after firing. After failing to upset the bowl, the foreign sea directed streaks of sunlight from its churning surface through the priestess's small window. In those evanescent moments, illumination flooded even the murkiest corners of her lair. Light glinted from the bowl's gold-leaf rim, catching the eye of the voyeuristic sailor behind the black curtain, who, for reasons he'd never truly understood, had always felt attuned to articles and relics of magical provenance. There Igide remained concealed while Admiral Hamilco still strode the deck, anticipating the presence of the woman on whom the sailor now spied. His eyes trailed after her long black twisted fingernails as they traced anti-clockwise around the rim of the bowl, her muttering mouth inches from them. In the light, he saw that intricate, unfamiliar tattoos covered the skin of her hands and wrists. Upon her fingers, rings were inset with holy stones clustered against her knuckles. Close to the bowl was a small palm-sized bust, which the sailor recognised from larger ones that had recently lined the great temple of Baal, celebrating a religious departure for Baratanak and the edge of the world. It was the face of the priestess herself, in full ceremonial headdress, bedecked with jewels and two circular wheels representing this world and the world beneath. She had gained fame or notoriety, depending on whom you spoke with, in Iberia on her last overseas mission. Life-size versions of the Holy Lady of Elche had been mounted at the temple gates both there and in Carthage. Even the most holy are prone to their base vanities, thought the sailor. With more light penetrating the room, Igidez saw that the generous shelf normally used to store barrels of wheat was now heaped high with fabrics. It had become a makeshift bed of some grandeur. 
The cramped seaman who now slumbered in meagre hammocks behind him could only dream of such comforts. The Sebek ascetics had been seen to carry enough bright silks, dyed camel pelts and sheep wool pillows on board to stock a respectable harem. As they passed the curious eyes of the crew, a thin-lipped Sardinian had joked that the priestess would service them from her bordello all the way across the unknown ocean to the Isle of Tin. A passing Sebek ascetic overheard the blasphemy, but held his tongue. Instead, he cast a withering look, as if he were sucking on the bitterest pickled lemon, for which the Rift Mountains were famed. The sailor devoured the scene before him. Once the movements of the ship had lessened, the woman grasped a nearby silver spoon and dug deep into the chalky poultice, carefully churning the contents anti-clockwise. When seven revolutions were complete, she paused to ladle oil generously from one of the stout clay jars that also bedecked the tabletop. Then the stirring continued, with seven further clockwise revolutions, more oil than seven anti-clockwise. He watched her sprinkle a cornucopia of ingredients into the concoction in the bowl. From the green and blue bottles that littered her table to small bowls of various powders, it reminded him of the days his beloved wife had spent preparing the feast for their daughter's wedding some months before. A match had already been made three years before the girl reached her eleventh year, when betrothal was customary. Sadly, the quality of the spread had not borne relation to the breadth of ingredients, as the dismayed guests were to find out, under a blue awning stretched across the whitewashed street. It was barely edible. A dash of every spice and condiment had been thrown into the bubbling pots of hare, lamb and lark, until each flavour drowned the other in an unpalatable overspiced stew. Luckily a cheap brand of lusty passam wine had numbed their taste buds until the nuts and dried fruit desserts were served with such sweetmeats customarily made by the bride's paternal grandmother, they did not disappoint. Though having had an arm torn from her three years before, the elder needed no help in the kitchen, especially from her daughter-in-law, who she had barred from the kitchen for culinary crimes. The superfluous limb had been forfeit whilst journeying from a mountain temple through the territory of a notorious lion pride. Still smeared in the indigo of penitent pilgrims, she was one of only two people a passing military cohort of mountain Berbers managed to save from the ravenous cats, driven half mad by mange. The stoic woman had never mourned the loss of the arm. She merely wished that its bone splinters had choked at least one of the accursed cats to death. The priestess deftly moved her hands over the table, snatching and pouring measures into her filling bowl. Some foul spell, no doubt, thought Egidere, shuddering with dread. It was in this moment of heightened awareness that adrenaline caused him to finally notice a faint and persistent tapping. At first he had ignored it amongst the many sounds of a busy ship but its persistence wormed its way into the foreground of his mind. Rap, tap, tap, it came, 
again and then again, but each time sharper and more deliberate. As he clutched the curtain, the sailor felt eyes upon him and glanced over his shoulder down the blackened passageway, but he was alone. Grimacing, he strained to place the sound. Purposeful footsteps overhead penetrated the ship, but could not explain the tapping. At times it sounded muffled, further compounding identification. Abruptly, throwing curses into the air around her, the priestess shoved her stool back from the cluttered table, causing it to screech across the deck. Jumping upright, she made three urgent strides across the cabin, Facing the crimson box, which twisted on its chain, she raised her right hand and wrapped her bony knuckles harshly upon it. Silence, she ordered. The box twisted violently with her assault, but, despite her instruction, almost immediately the tapping came again. I said silence, slave. Obey your new master, or there will be consequences. She drew out the enunciation of her words in latent threat. Poised, glaring at the twisting box, she awaited another response. None came. Muttering to herself, she returned to her seat and recommenced her task. By the great ramparts of Nineveh, what on earth is in that box? Igidare wondered, fingering his nose ring as he often did when confused. When he first heard her bark at the sound of the tapping, he had been most confused. No slave had boarded the galley. The sailors would have noticed. They had all been told she would be travelling alone to head up the growing religious colony that Carthage had established in Baratanak. But here she was, talking to someone or something. At first he had entertained the fleetest thought that some diminutive servant had been spirited on board inside the soft furnishings. But when the priestess focused all her ire and speech upon the twisting crimson box, he was confounded. After some time vigorously stirring the ingredients in the bowl, the priestess raised her voice in haunting song, in tones and lilts so desolate that the sailor feared the tongues of lost spirits now sang through her, and swirled in the airs around him. Hailing from that place the Egyptians had always called the spirit lands, such things made him wary, for he knew they attracted and empowered malignancies to wreak havoc. She should never have been allowed on the ship, whispered his mind. Am I now cursed for having been part of this damned crew? An invasive shaft of sunlight shone from her raven hair while she sang her songs. They sounded like the hymns to undead sirens he'd once heard as an adolescent on travels with his father. Deep in the driest mountain valleys, he had listened as a local tribe's black magic seer sang curses to the wild evening winds of summer. Though he didn't understand the words, the sounds crawled upon his skin and had haunted him throughout his life. They still lived in his most terrifying nightmares, leading him to wonder if those bitter curses had entered his body to dwell in him, waiting for the day they would make themselves known again. As the priestess sang, she fondled the small bust of her head and shoulders, with tattooed hands examining herself in full ceremonial attire. 
As the words of the song spun around him, Igidez's eyes were drawn back to the crimson box, still twisting on its iron chain. The metal loop attached to its lid gleamed, appearing to be hewn from silver. The crimson box itself was a perfect medium-sized cuboid, taller than it was wide, of a silver-edged decorative type and similar volume to those he had often seen travelling Egyptian nobles use to comfortably transport one holy family cat. Incessantly spoiled, Egyptian felines were notoriously haughty. Two could possibly have been squeezed into the box, but they might have torn each other to death. From what he could see, the grain upon the box's skin suggested a leather finish. It was a rich red reminiscent of sacrificial ox blood. The colour of the rich, congealed cakes of it gifted to street children in days after holy feasts, when the temples and streets ran with bull blood. Bang! 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 Like a branded hyena, the sailor jumped at the sound. The holy arse of Mother Tanit, he cursed under his stale breath. Before the expletive had even left his mouth, the priestess raised her voice in fury in an unfamiliar tongue. Turning her head, she glared in anger at the swinging box. Rushing forward, she placed her hands upon its sides as if to crush it. As she closed her eyes and bowed her head, to the sailor she seemed to embrace a deep and deliberate concentration. Ah! she cried, pulling her hands away as if scalded. The receptacle swung free from her grasp. Such bitterness was in her tone that Igadez's nerves rattled for fear of discovery. Bile rose in his throat. That soul-snatched vagabond assured me the box was sufficient to safely contain and silence the corruption, she cried in familiar punic, pacing the cabin. A gifted lover he may be, but if that undead desert trickster has lied to me, I will bite out his crisp, duplicitous liver with my own fucking teeth, she raged, wringing her hands in pain. He will regret betraying a high priestess of Baal, when next I cradle his tender testicles in my hand and suck his lungs from his mouth. Lover, thought Igadir, surely not. A priestess of such rank must have always been chaste and devoted in her life to Baal, not caressing the scrotum of a desert trickster. This is blasphemy. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe. I must leave you now, but do not despair. If you listen to the next instalment, the curse cannot harm you, but you must believe. Now pull the blanket over your head and be quiet. You are not alone. Shh.